everyone. Welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. I am your host, Bree, and my co-host today is one of my just amazing friends. Aaron is here. Hello, Bree. Thanks for having me on again. Thanks for being here and joining us today. We have the amazing opportunity to chat with author Jen Gilroy. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. We're happy you're here. Please share with us, Jen, how 2022 has started for you. Well, hello, Bree and Aaron, and hello, everyone else uh, who's listening. And I just wanted to, first of all, say thank you for hosting me. I listen to this podcast very often, so it's extra exciting to guest on it myself. Uh, in terms of 2022, uh, I'm happy to say that it started well for me. I, I think that possibly, like many people, I was glad to see the end of 2021. Uh, but 2022 has has started well in that where I live in my part of Canada, pandemic restrictions are easing. So life feels a little bit more normal. Um, my husband is still working from home. So we're having lots of lovely winter walks with our dog. So that's a lot of fun. And I'm also writing books that I'm really enjoying and I'm excited about ultimately sharing with readers. Oh, well, thank you for, you know, using this time to write. <laughs> As readers, we're very selfish. <laughs> oh, yes. All right. Are you ready to get into, into some icebreakers? Sure. All right. If you came with a warning label, what would it say? <laughs> that question makes me laugh because I, I suspect people who know me well would say something different. But mine would be, don't mess with my inner mama bear. My husband like reminds me all the time, like your mama bear is coming out. Calm down. <laughs> what do you mean, calm down? Yeah. <laughs> yes. My husband does the same for me. Tell us your life story in one sentence. That's a really tough question, but I'll have a go. And for me, it is a story of reinvention and persistence blessed with lots of love. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. What, what is one of your favorite gifts you've treated yourself to this year? Well, it's related to my writing life. And as some listeners, depending on who's listening to this, may know, uh, if people follow me on social media already, I usually buy a piece of jewelry to mark milestones in my writing life. And I've done that long before I was published. And I started back then a writing charm bracelet, and I added silver charms to celebrate writing achievements, large and small, because no matter how small the achievement, I believe it should be celebrated. To, so to celebrate my latest book and the first book I've written for Harlequin Heartwarming, Montana Reunion, since it's a Western romance, I treated myself to a silver horseshoe charm. Yeah, I love that. That, that is so cool. That yeah. that's just such a personal and and touching thing that it's got to mean so much. That's really interesting. Thank you. It, it does mean so much to me. Whenever I wear it, which I, I wear my bracelet often, not today because it would be clanking in the background <laughs> here, but I, I look at it and I see where I came from as a writer and where I am now and charms that mark different books and and also different different achievements. I just love that it I mean for well now that I'm thinking about it you have a visual representation of your writing journey which I think is incredible but also it's just a reminder celebrate the wins if you like big or small. I I thought that I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Yes, and we we all know who who are authors that the author life, no matter whether you're writing romance or in another genre, it's a very difficult life at times, and there's a lot of rejection in it. And I think it's so important to celebrate each small win and small step. So that's what I try to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we love romance origin stories. So can you share with us how you became a romance reader? I'm happy to, um, because I, I think... In one way or another, I've probably always read romance. As a little girl, I loved fairy tales with the promise of happily ever after. And then when I read books like Anne of Green Gables and the sequels to Anne of Green Gables, which are still amongst my favorite books, in part, what appealed to me about those stories was the love story between Anne and Gilbert. 
but when I became, I suppose, a specifically a, a romance reader was when I started reading Harlequin romances in my teens. And I continue to read romance all the way through university. I like to think about it as an antidote or sort of a, a palate cleanser to all the academic reading I had to do. Mm-hmm. And then I, I've read romance through my working life as well. And looking back on it, um, it makes me think that what romance gives me now and what romance reading has always given me, because I'll always be a reader first before I'm an author, um, romance is comforting. It gave me and still gives me hope and encouragement when times are hard. And I still go back to books that I read early on, um, some books by Susan Elizabeth Phillips, for example, when I need a, a fictional escape and sort of a, a pick-me-up. Yeah. 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 Well, you're not the only one that feels that way about uh, about reading romance, definitely. So from what we read on your website, it sounds like you've had a love of writing since you were a child, but eventually you had to set that aside. You wrote, and one day I realized that my that by losing my creative writing, I'd also lost a part of what makes me who I am. For anyone listening who may have recently come to this conclusion, what advice would you give them? Well, first of all, thank you for looking at my website and picking up on on that comment because it it is very much part of of me as a writer. And it's true. I I can't remember a time when I didn't write. Uh, I was a child who put together a small newspaper that I would write out by hand and staple it together in sheets of paper. Uh, I loved writing stories. And as an adult, though, I still wrote, but it was for work. Um, I wrote corporate speeches, marketing materials, academic articles, all sorts of, of things that you know were not creative at all. And if someone comes to that realization that by losing creative writing, they've lost part of themselves, as I did, I would say to that person, congratulations and good for you. And that may be a, an odd first thing to say, but I mean it because once you realize what's missing in your life and what's missing in your creative life, especially you can take steps to change it in whatever way works for you. And I firmly believe that if you really want to do something, then you will take the steps to do that thing. And and if it's writing, um, so for example, you can start making writing part of your daily practice. You can create space in your life to write. Um, for me, that was giving up watching a lot of television. Um, and, and also making your writing a priority, because unless you treat it as a priority, nobody else will treat it as a priority. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm going through that now. I'm pursuing my master's in teaching, which I need, like I want to do so that I can go back out into the workforce and work. But it's a lot of academic reading and writing papers. And I have just told myself, you still have time to do this thing. You still have time to read. You still have time to pursue your own writing, you know, because for the longest, I was like, I just don't have time. Like that was my excuse. But I think you just like you said, you have to figure out ways to make the time. I've had to tell, well, you just watched five episodes of Frasier. You could have been writing. So. <laughs> yes, like exactly. And it's, I think too, that a lot of people have, have this idea that, that in order to write, you have to wait for creative inspiration to strike. And I'm here to say, no, you don't. Um, because even before writing became my job, I trained myself to be able to write anywhere. I wrote while a sports practice for my daughter was going on around me. I wrote in airports because at that time I tried, uh, I, I traveled rather a lot for what was my day job. I, I write in hospital waiting rooms too. So it's just fitting it in. What I did when I started 
was I would set myself a, a word count target for the day that it was small, 250 words each day. And so I could fit that into little bits of time. And those 250 words add up. And that's that's how I, I ended up writing my first book and books thereafter. I love that because Erin, I think for us, right, we always hear, we always have like in our mind, oh, you got to aim for like 500 or a thousand words a day. But right. I think for me personally, if I took it smaller than that and I said, okay, just 250 words, that's so doable. It is. Yeah. It's, it's such an achievable number. And that's, and thank you, Jen, for, for saying that <laughs> <Yeah>. because <laughs> sometimes that's all you have in you in a day is just 200 some words. And, and, you know, it can be so easy to just pile on yourself about, you know, not making those high word counts. Yeah, it, it, it's true. And I didn't have time to write a thousand words a day. Um, and certainly when I started out, I was a much slower writer than I am now. So 250 felt manageable. I could do that in my lunch hour. I could do that while waiting for a hospital appointment. And it was just all of a sudden I, I did it. And I, I tracked it on a spreadsheet too. Very, you know, old school Excel spreadsheet. Wow. And after a few weeks, I could see that those 250 words were adding up. And all of a sudden I had a chapter. Then I had two chapters. And, and it was exciting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then I rewarded myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, your first three titles, The Cottage at Firefly Lake, Summer on Firefly Lake, and Back Home at Firefly Lake were all published with Forever Publishing. Can you take us through your journey to becoming published? Yes. I always like hearing about how people became published too. So I, I hope that, that my journey is, is of interest to you and, and listeners. I wanted to start by saying that I always wanted to be a traditionally published author. And that's how I started out. Uh, because when I first started writing, indie publishing wasn't as big or viable as it is now. And I, I think that everybody has to choose the path that works for them Absolutely. at a particular time. So it's, you know, it's one is not better than the other. It was just at that point, I thought, I think traditional publishing works best for me. However, in order to become traditionally published, I took a very long and winding journey to get there, as I think uh, probably a lot of authors do. Um, but despite taking a lot of detours in my life and doing other things than writing, I don't regret those things because in a way now looking back, they helped shape my fiction. Um, However, that being said, despite reading romance and also women's fiction all the time, I don't know why, but it took me quite a while to make the connection that those were the sorts of books I should be writing. Okay. So okay. early on, yes, I know, it's like ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> I, I sampled a number of different genres, and a long time ago, I tried writing and querying young adult, and those were all rejected. And so I went in and out of writing for a while. But then around 2009, I had some major life losses, uh, close family deaths. It, it was a really a, a reminder, a poignant reminder that life is short. And that if I wanted to be a traditionally published author, I had to get serious about it. And Around the same time, I realized, wait a minute, what am I reading? What do I love? I should be writing romance and women's fiction. So that was my light bulb moment. And I don't know how it took me so long to get there, but it did. Um, and so that's when I, I began that daily writing practice around a busy day job, a family life. And I wrote more books, uh, which were rejected. <laughs> But then I had a book which ultimately became The Cottage of Firefly Lake, which helped me sign with my American literary agent, my first agent, in 2014. Okay. And there was a lot of rejection after that, after working with my agent on that book. But then the book finaled in RWA's Golden Heart Contest in 2015. And I have to say that that was life-changing for me, uh, not only because it helped me connect with a, a wonderful writing community that I still value to this day, but also later in the summer of 2015, my agent sold the cottage at Firefly Lake to Grand Central Forever. It was part of a three-book deal, and my career began at that point. Um, 
the series is what I, I guess I would now call romantic women's fiction, second chance romances, and it's set in a small Vermont resort town um, where the way I summarize it is it's a place where roots and love run deep. Okay, so before we keep going, I have to ask, so first, like, what inspired, like, where did the, the want to write young adult come from? And I mean, 2009 was not that long ago, but it feels so long ago. So like, what did the, like, what did the world of publishing look like at that time that you were trying to get those, those published? Um, when I look back, I, I thought that then that the world of publishing was in upheaval, in a state of upheaval. Okay. <laughs> but uh, looking back, I think it was probably quite calm waters because it was it was just before indie publishing really took off. Okay. It was, you know, Kindle eBooks were starting to take off around that point. Mm-hmm. It, it was another time of transition, although I didn't realize it at the time. And I, I think because I was I was trying to write young adult, and those young adult had romances in them as well, possibly because I, I'd always enjoyed reading young adult novels. Uh, I still do, because a lot of young adult novels, I think, appeal to adult readers, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, in a way, looking back, that was that was very good training for me, because none of those books will ever be published. However, something that reviewers have picked up on is that I write emotionally and evocatively about young people and families. And I think that that writing those young adult books helped me hone that part of my craft. Okay. Yeah. 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 And it comes through definitely on, on, in a Montana reunion, the young adults in that story feel very genuine. Oh, thank mm-hmm. you. That's that's lovely of you to say, Aaron. I really appreciate it. That that means uh, a lot. I can I can say it because I, I have two of them living in my house with me right now. So it's, <laughs> I, I live it every day. <laughs> so on Amazon, this series of books is considered women's fiction. Tell us about the difference between writing women's fiction and romance. That's a, another really good question, and I, I have to preface it by saying that I was very surprised when readers review and indeed Amazon called my Firefly Lake books women's fiction. Mm-hmm. Because when I was writing them, I always considered them to be romance, um, although there was a lot more going on in them than some romance novels. So there was lots of interactions with family, friends, and community, and jobs, and other parts of, of life apart from the romantic relationship. But then when reviews started coming in and people were calling this women's fiction, I I was really confused. And so hence, I sort of have moved to call it romantic women's fiction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that this probably was influenced by me living in England for many years. I'm, I'm a dual um, British and Canadian citizen. And I was very involved in the romance writing community in England through the Romantic Novelists Association. I, I still am, actually. But in England, romantic fiction has a much broader definition than it does in North America. I am so glad you said that because that is a theory that I have had the more that I read more books from like the UK, from over there. And I didn't know if it was just a me thing, but I no. love that you said that. <laughs> it isn't It isn't just a you thing, Brie. Okay. And I love, I mean, I personally love kind of the romantic women's fiction or whatever people want to call it. I, I personally love it. Yes. So please, con- I just had the fangirl for a moment. No, that's <laughs> That's, that's fine. And I, I think it, you know, romance, I, I am a romance writer, but there are a, sort of a, a wide ranging definition of what constitutes romance fiction versus women's fiction. And to get back to your original question, certainly for me, and because I, I'm now also alongside my romances writing what I'd call mainstream women's fiction, the main difference between those two genres is the emphasis on the romance versus a woman's life journey. Mm-hmm. So for example, my women's fiction has romantic elements, but my romances, like Montana Reunion, are more closely focused on the developing romantic relationship between 
in, in my case, two main characters, a hero and a heroine. So when you're writing the women's fiction or, or the romance, do you have to catch yourself like, oh, I'm doing this thing that I'm not supposed to do in this, this novel because this isn't what that is? Sometimes, yes. Okay. Yes. And I have to, I do have to remind myself and I actually above my desk have two little post-it notes you know, one on the left-hand side, one on the right-hand side, and one says romantic focus and journey. And then the other one says women's fiction with romantic elements, woman's journey or women's journey, because I'm writing dual timeline women's fiction. So there are two women in it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. at okay. different times. <laughs> So, I mean, we just always love to hear about backlist titles. So you also have your Wishing Tree series. Can you tell us what that series is about? Yes, I'm happy to. Um, In many ways, my Wishing Tree books are similar to my Firefly Lake stories because they're also small town contemporary romances or romantic women's fiction, as we just mentioned. Although this time they're not set in Vermont, they're set in the fictional Irish Falls in the Adirondack Mountains of New York State. I always have trouble pronouncing that mountain range. Um, Irish Falls is an Irish-American community, and the town has a wishing tree, which is a special tree believed to make wishes come true. Wishing trees are popular in Irish culture. I have Irish ancestry, but I became fascinated with them, not through my own background, but because I learned about them in Hong Kong, which was a place where I used to travel often for a past day job. And I started thinking about what if a small town had a wishing tree? And what if in that town, happily ever after was only a wish away? So it's the romance, uh, small town, but a little bit of magical realism, I suppose you might call it as well, because uh-huh. this, this, this tree is, is a bit magical. That sounds so interesting. I'm, I'm hooked now. I, I'm going to have to go find this. <laughs> like you well, said, inspiration you. comes from an, anywhere. Like, like who would have thought an idea for like, you know, the small town would come from you traveling to Hong Kong. So <laughs> Exactly. Yes. And I, I, I had a lot of time on, on flights at that time in my life. And it was a very long flight between London in England and Hong Kong. And so I had a lot of time to think about books and books I might, lo- might like to write. And so that's where the idea came from. And I just noted it down and I have an ideas folder and that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. I, I did want to say, though, that unlike my current writing in Montana Reunion, I, I should say to listeners that my Firefly Lake and Wishing Tree books have a somewhat higher romance heat level than the clean romances I'm currently writing, like my Montana okay. Reunion oh, being okay. a, a clean romance. <laughs> So I just wanted to make that clear. Okay. I, I love, I can't remember who said it, but the comment about the heartwarming line is like, there, there isn't even a door. The door's no. not even there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I have written different heat levels, Firefly Lake and Wishing Tree. There is definitely a door. <laughs> so. so this past January, Montana Reunion released your first book with Harlequin's heartwarming line. Congratulations. How did writing for Harlequin come to be? Well, I have to say that it was a dream come true. (laughs) Um, It was a a really, a really big moment Mm -hmm. in in my life and writing career. I have long wanted to write for Harlequin. And when I first started out writing romance, I was aiming at the super romance line. Oh, yeah. uh, Which, of course, as we all know, is closed. But I found out about the heartwarming line when I was at the Romance Writers of America conference in New York in 2015. And I still have some heartwarming swag from that time. So, you know, I like to think maybe it was a bit of a sign. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I went went ahead and published other, other books with other publishers. And then in the summer of 2020, I was at a crossroads in my writing life. And I was mulling over where I wanted to take my career. Um, Did I want to continue writing for traditional publication? Did I want to indie publish? Where was I going to go next? What did I want to write? My American agent, who has been my agent since 2014, uh, I should specify.
specify, though, that I now also have a British agent for women's fiction. But this was my American romance agent. She shared a heartwarming call for Western romance proposals in her private agency Facebook group. And I saw this, and it was another one of those light bulb moments, you know, that I thought, why on earth didn't I think about this before? Because I grew up in Western Canada. I lived for several years in Alberta, Canada, various equivalents to the American West. I've had so many happy family vacations in Montana. I love Western life and culture. It's familiar to me. But until I saw that call for proposals, it had never even occurred to me to write a Western romance. And I'm so glad it did occur to me. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. at that time, I thought, all right, well, I'll, I'll put a proposal together. And a proposal uh, is usually three chapters and a synopsis, which is a short summary of the intended book. So I thought, I can put that together. So I did. And since by that point, I was almost considering myself the self-proclaimed poster girl for writerly rejection, I decided I was going to write the story I wanted to, not one that I thought would sell or that anyone else had encouraged me to write. And that story became Montana Reunion. And it was submitted, my agent submitted it to Harlequin in sort of around September, October 2020 time. And before Christmas, my agent told me that the editor she'd sent it to, the wonderful Catherine Lai at Harlequin, had liked my proposal and it had gone to the executive editor, Kathleen Scheibling, for her consideration. Of course, I was really happy about this, but I was also very wary because 2020 had been a very hard year for me in writing as well as life. And so I didn't want to get my hopes up. And I have to confess that I'd resorted to reading my daily horoscope, which I, I hadn't done for years, but I'd gone back to reading my horoscope because I was looking for any nuggets of good news. Yeah. And my horoscope was saying to me, things are going to get better. You've had a tough year, but you know, there's good things are ahead. And I yeah. thought, mm hmm And even when it does give us good news, we're like, sure, okay. Yes. <laughs> if I'd had, you know, family problems, writing problems. Problems. There's been this, this whole whole difficult time. So anyway, I was still feeling quite skeptical, but I should not have doubted because within three weeks, oh my uh, just before and immediately after Christmas, so it was just before Christmas and then right at the beginning of January, first of all, I sold uh, an historical dual timeline women's fiction uh, manuscript rather to a British publisher, and that was a three-book deal. And then immediately after that, I got an offer and sold Montana Reunion to Harlequin Heartwarming. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations. So, you know, the moral of that story, if, if I could give any advice to somebody else who, who might be in my situation or what my situation was, is just when you think that all is lost, good things may be around the corner really good things. And I, I cried when I got this news. I was a complete teary mess throughout Christmas and New Year. But for such good reasons, it was just huge joy, dream come true. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. <laughs> I just love story. it. Like, it would, especially when we hear, oh, I read Harlequin as a teen. And then when you get the deep, like when you sell a book, to a publisher you read as a teenager. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like, talk about full circle, you know? Exactly. And I I miss my mom. I lost my mom 10 years ago, but I, I still miss her every day. But I have never missed her more, I think, than when I sold to Harlequin. And she liked to read Harlequins too. And it would just be, you know, that would be such a wonderful thing to be able to share with her. So I hope that somewhere she knows. Yeah. 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 So can you tell us, tell everybody what Montana Reunion is about? Okay. Um, it's a second chance romance, which is my favorite kind. And along with that, it's a bit of a fish out of water story too. Mm -hmm. The hero and heroine are rancher Zach and career driven city girl Beth, who throughout the story find second chances in love as well as life. There's lots of horses and dogs in the story, 
small town life. And it's also about finding family and family can be found in all sorts of different ways. And that's something I wanted to convey in this story. However, in brief, Zach and Beth first met at a Montana summer camp when they were teenagers. So young love, summer romance. Beth was visiting from Chicago and Zach lived on the ranch next door and he worked in the camp stables. So that's the backstory. But when they meet again almost 20 years later, which is when Montana Reunion takes place, Zach's family now owns the summer camp, and they've transformed it into a camp for young people with disabilities and their families. Beth, meanwhile, has just lost her best friend, and she's become the guardian of her best friend's daughter, then 12-year-old Ellie, who Ellie becomes 13 during the course of the story. Ellie uh, is a girl who lives with mostly invisible disabilities. So Breath brings her to this Montana summer camp, hoping that it will both help Ellie and help the two of them start to forge the beginnings of a new family, because both Beth and Ellie are grieving the loss of Ellie's mother from cancer. So we have Beth, who is still a city girl. She's still in Chicago, and she now has a big, high-powered corporate job. And she hasn't had much to do with children, so she's desperately trying to figure out how to be a mom to Ellie. And at the same time is grappling with her own childhood abandonment and trust issues. Mm -hmm. And she certainly isn't looking for romance at this point. She has enough on her plate. And even if she was looking for romance, she wouldn't be looking for it in Montana. On the other hand, we have Zach, who isn't looking for romance either, at least not with a city girl. And more seriously, and although I don't want to give away any spoilers, Zach has valid reasons for having convinced himself he can't have a family of his own. But since we're here talking about romance and Montana Reunion is definitely a romance, Beth and Zach work through their beliefs about themselves, all those inner fears, and they work up through the things that they believe about each other too. And they earn their happily ever after. And they earn it in such a fun way too. There's so there's a third perspective in this story of Joy, Zach's mother, that I thought was just I thought it was such a great addition. It it threw me off a little bit at first when we get that first chapter with her. I'm like, well, who's this Joy person? (laughs) But I, I think her chapters were some of my favorite in the whole book. Oh, thank you, Erin. I, I love Joy as a character. And she, uh, just to clarify for listeners, she sets up this this secret matchmaking scheme to, to bring her son and Beth together. And I had a lot of fun writing about Joy. We just love matchmaking schemers. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. <laughs> Do you feel like just hearing you talk about the book, do you feel like you get to kind of explore a little bit of your women's fiction loving roots in heartwarming? Because I get that vibe when I read some heartwarming novels. I mean, obviously, it's a romance. We know we're going to get that happy ever after. But it is you focus so much on the characters like internal conflicts and struggles and emotions that it it can feel kind of like women's fiction-ish in a way. I agree. Yes, very much, Brie. And that's where a character like Joy comes from, because she's in the book in her late 50s. She's recently been widowed. In that sense, she's much more of a women's fiction heroine than a romance heroine. Uh, And although in, of course, Montana Reunion, she's a secondary character, she's nevertheless a very important one. And she gives the story some additional depth with different life experiences, grappling with different real life issues, uh, as well as being a lot of fun because, you know, she... She wants her son to be happy, as as all parents want their children, no matter how old they are, to be happy. And so that's very much a women's fiction element, I would say. What did you enjoy the most about writing the unexpected reunion trope in Beth and Zach's romance? It's hard to choose just one thing, but I think in, in many ways, writing Montana Reunion and Beth and Zach's story really helped reignite my love of storytelling because I started that book with no expectations. It was a proposal. It wasn't under contract. I wrote it very much for myself. And I gave 
my characters tough real life conflicts and I tackled some hard issues too like chronic illness but Montana Reunion is above all at least I see it this way as a story that's filled with warmth hope and heart and so from beginning to end it was both joyful and very creatively fulfilling to write so when you saw I mean you you told us a little bit about you know the, the finding out what heartwarming was looking for. How soon after that information did you come up with the story? Did did one of the characters come to you or did you hear what they needed and just kind of sit down and kind of plot everything out? Like, can you, t- can you tell us that part of it? Sure. It was very quick, surprisingly quick. It was almost as if the story was already there and that's never happened to me before. Wow. Yeah. And I... I saw this and the day later, day or two later, and I was actually on holiday with my husband and teenage daughter when I saw this. And I don't usually work on holiday and I I didn't work then either, but I, I made some notes and it was just as if the character's story, the setting were there. And in terms of the setting, I I would like to say that setting is important in all my fiction, no matter what I write. It's always been very important. And at a time when the pandemic meant that I couldn't travel anywhere in real life, when I say I was on holiday, I was only two hours from home. So I wasn't, you know, hadn't, hadn't gone very far. But through Montana Reunion, I got to revisit Montana I got to revisit Western life and culture in my imagination and drawing on so many happy memories. So I think that was part of it, too. It was summer. I was thinking about past summer vacations, and I I can't explain it in any logical way, but all of a sudden the book was there. It just came to you. That's that's incredible. It's amazing. (laughs) So you talked a little bit about Ellie. So can you, what inspired Ellie's character? I'm really glad you asked me about Ellie because she's a a character who's very close to my heart. Ellie has multiple chronic illnesses. She's Mm -hmm. 12, almost 13. But I also have a daughter who, like Ellie, has multiple chronic illnesses. Now, Ellie is in no way my daughter in fictional form. And I need to make that very clear. Ellie is completely fictional. However, parts of Ellie's character and experiences were inspired by what I would call my my journey through chronic illness with my own daughter. And that's a journey that continues. It's to me been especially meaningful that several reviewers have picked up on that chronic illness aspect of the book. And they've singled out my depiction of these so-called invisible illnesses, because that's something I wanted to convey in this story. And Ellie, yes, she is chronically ill but she's trying to live her best life with chronic illnesses. And that's what my daughter does. My daughter is now older than Ellie. She's 18. She's in her first year of university. She's living independently. And I'm so proud of her because she is trying to be the best possible person that she can be with chronic illnesses, not in spite of them. Right. Yeah. I just love anytime we have a character that lives with fill in the blank. Um, I My daughter has an intellectual disability and same, just like you said, you just, you see them live life in the, with fill in the blank, but like she still yes. has the things that she loves and still laughs and still thrives. And it's not like what makes them them, you know, it's just something that's part of them that, you know, exactly. but it's a constant journey. Like you said, it's, it's, it's a journey. And exactly like you said, Brie, in that to me, Fundamentally, Ellie is simply another character in the story, and she has the same challenges that any other almost teenage girl has. But I wanted to highlight in what I hope is a a gentle, hopeful, and also a natural and authentic way that there are many people like Ellie out there of all ages who may, to the casual observer, look fine on the outside, but they struggle daily with numerous chronic conditions. Yes. Yeah. 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 
uh, you had a moment in there where you explained that, you know, there, there are people that use wheelchairs that, that can still have limited mobility, that, you know, the wheelchair is a tool for when they need it. And, you know, I've known a couple people in my life that, that that's been the case. And, you know, you see when someone first sees them get up and walk and do something, they've got this confusion on their face. And I thought that was really great that you you represented that and really explained that, you know, it's yes, this person can walk, but it's not always something they can do. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. I, I, I wanted to bring that out too, because certainly in, in my experience with my own daughter, you know, yes, she she has been an ambulatory wheelchair user. Yes, she can walk, but there are, have been times, certain situations where she needs to use her wheelchair. And people, complete strangers in, in airports, for example, have accused her out of the blue of, of, of faking the fact that she needed a wheelchair. And that's incredibly damaging for anybody, but especially for a, a teenager. And so I hope that in a small way, people who read Montana Reunion and who haven't had any exposure to invisible illnesses and disabilities will maybe think a little bit about what that world is like. And hopefully the book, it's not the purpose of the book, but I hope that it, it will help to spread a bit more awareness and, and some compassion to and, and understanding. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Well, Jen, are you ready for some round out questions? I am. Thank you. What is one hill you will wholeheartedly die on? Um, that question makes me laugh in a way, but for that one, I'm going to say kindness. And what I mean is that each day we have a choice as to how we're going to interact in the world and with others. And particularly at the moment, we, we live in what seems to be like a very divided and often very toxic world. And I want to promote kindness. And that's something that I try to do on social media as well. And a little bit related to my book, in a way, is that my late mom taught me that we never know what somebody else is dealing with, whether it's an you know, invisible disability or other issues, emotional, mental health problems, or who knows what it is. But above all, no matter how difficult it is, choose to be kind. Kindness that, is absolutely yeah. free. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. And it's it's easy, too. Yes. <laughs> and, and you just never know when a small kindness to somebody can really make a difference in their life. And if somebody's kind to me, I try to pass it on. You know, it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's the gift that keeps giving. Yeah, I love that you shared that about your mom, because that's one of my like beliefs. I have to remind myself all the time, like, yes, this person was just a complete jerk, but you never know what they may be dealing with. So just, exactly. you know, yeah. on your end, be nice. Just be nice. <laughs> what is one film you will never stop watching? I love Mrs. Miracle. I watch it each Christmas. It's based on the book by Debbie Maycomber. Debbie Maycomber, yeah. <laughs> It's heartwarming. It's uplifting. It's a bit like a heartwarming romance, I have to say. And it gives me such a, a sense of hope, joy, and a, a really nice cozy feeling too. Did you watch, you know, they put out a new one this past holiday season. Did you see it? I didn't. Oh, I, I it was don't so know good. if that was, oh, I, maybe it wasn't showing in Canada yet. I, okay. I didn't see that. It, yeah, it was on Hallmark. If you get a chance to watch it, 2021 premiere, it was so good. It was so good. Oh, I will look for that. Thank you. You're I just welcome. made a note of that because that, yes, I, I just love that film. It's part of my Christmas. I have the DVD. I get it out every Christmas. <laughs> I've actually never heard of this one, so I'm definitely going to check that check that out. What is the first song on the soundtrack to your life? I have chosen an old Fleetwood Mac song, Don't Stop. The lyrics resonate with me because it's about looking to the future with hope and a smile and trying not to look back at past heartaches and mistakes. Besides reading, what was one of your teen girl obsessions? I had a lot of them, but for this question, I'm going to choose dance, but especially ballet. I studied ballet for many years, and it's still an important part of my life. I, I take an, an adult ballet class every Saturday, so that's what I was doing yesterday yesterday afternoon. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Who was your teenage celebrity crush? I'm going to date myself here, of course. 
but Patrick Swayze in the film Dirty Dancing. Very I, I just, good choice. <laughs> I, I just mentioned that that I love to dance, I still do, and you know the combination of dancing and Patrick Swayze, bliss. <laughs> Uh, and, and I was also so sad when he died uh, of pancreatic cancer because yeah. Well, yeah. It, it just felt like an important part of my life had died too. I watched a, there's like a docu-series all about films that made pop culture basically. And they talked about Dirty Dancing and like the lady who like wrote the, the film actually like did the Dirty Dancing as a teenager. I didn't know that this was based off of a real thing that teenagers did once upon a time. Oh, but wow. it was just, it was so fascinating how like nobody wanted to buy the film. Nobody believed in it. And then it's like this box office hit. And it's, I mean, it's, it's like a cult classic nowadays. And I'm like, most of the cult classics I feel like started off as films that nobody thought would anyone would want to go see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is one book you wish you could experience reading again for the first time? A Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. I have my grandmother's copy of the book. It's a very old copy. I think she got it as a Sunday school prize when she was a girl herself. I was very close to that grandma, and I would love to be able to experience both reading and talking about the book with her again mm -hmm. for the first oh. time. I'd also love to share the films with her, too. Yeah. Yeah. What is one of the toughest pieces of advice you've ever received? I've chosen a piece of writing advice, since okay. we're talking about romance writing here. But it's also a piece of advice that was very tough to hear, but has helped me in my life too. And it came from a comment in a critique of the first romance novel I ever wrote. And it was an anonymous critique. I mentioned the British Romantic Novelist Association earlier. They have a scheme called the New Writers Scheme that you apply to join, and it's it's very oversubscribed. It even was oversubscribed when I tried to join. You have to be hot off the mark as soon as uh, applications open. But as part of being in that scheme, you have a critique of your completed romance, romantic fiction manuscript from a published author. And I would have been so grateful to the Romantic Novelist Association because I don't think without that scheme I would have ever been published in the first place. But this anonymous published author took the time to read my really rough first romance. And they were whoever critiqued it was very encouraging. But they said about a book that always will remain unpublished and for good reason. And I, I went back to, to think about what she said and look it up. Um, I, I do know it was a woman who, who gave the critique. But she said, you write well, but to write romance, you have to write from your heart and let yourself feel real emotions, no matter how hard. That was very tough, but it was accurate because that first book was almost emotionless. I had spent all these years writing corporate Yeah, materials. all that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. And... I had to work on that in, in both my writing, um, as well as life too, because I'm naturally a shy and introverted person, like I, I a lot of authors are. But that advice helped me to let what I think is my inner warmth shine through in both my writing and in my life. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think for me, I I think I'm afraid to go some places. You know, you want I just want the world to be all nice and kindness, but it's like when you're writing, you have to go there, you know? And it's like I'm a, I think sometimes there's that fear of exploring those conflicts and getting into those emotions, but I thank you for sharing that um, that comment, that critique that you got back. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You're welcome. And, and I would say, Brie, that it is very hard to let yourself feel those feelings. But by learning how to do it, that's how I became a romance writer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. romance books are about emotion. Well, this may be the same thing, but knowing what you know now, what would author Jen Gilroy go back and tell herself back at the beginning of your writing career? Believe in yourself, be true to who you are, and be true to the stories you want to tell. Can you share what's coming up next from you? Yes, I, I'm happy to share that. Um, leading with some really wonderful news, um, I have just, as in just 
you know, days, signed a new contract with Harlequin Heartwarming for three more books to follow in the same series as Montana Reunion. Okay, congratulations. Thank you. I'm really thrilled about that. I'm grateful too. So I'm now writing the sequel to Montana Reunion, which for those who have read the book, it's Zach's brother Cole's story. He's a rodeo cowboy who has been injured and he's had to retire from rodeo. He meets a single mom who's an animal physical therapist. So there's lots of emotional, rich emotional conflict between them and sweet and heartwarming times there too. So I'm excited about that. Uh, Also coming up, um, what I would call my first mainstream women's fiction debut. So it's not a romance, but it's a mainstream women's fiction debut. It's called The Sweetheart Locket. It does have romantic elements. It's out next month, March the 17th, from Orion Dash, which is the new digital first commercial fiction imprint of the UK's Orion Books. And that's an historical Second World War and contemporary dual timeline with some spy secret agent elements, although there are American and Canadian elements too. And it's also the first book that I've set mostly in England, which is, I think I said earlier, is my second home. So all of this writing is stretching me in new ways as a writer. It's helping me grow, which is what I always want to do. I I love growing my craft. And it's... It's a good time with lots of good things coming up. Well, I was sold at Spies. And yes. I said so. A woman, too. Yes. yes. <laughs> so lastly, where can everyone follow you online? The first place to head would be my website, which is www.jengilroy.com. And on that site, listeners can find links to sign up for my monthly newsletter, as well as my blog. I blog every two weeks, a little bit about writing, but mostly about life. Like my newsletter is a lot about my life, too. I'm also on social media, uh, Facebook and Instagram as Jen Gilroy Author. And Twitter as Jen Gilroy One. I guess there were a lot of Jen Gilroys on Twitter before I joined Twitter. I post on Facebook and Twitter the most frequently and Instagram a few times a week. And it's wonderful to chat with readers. I have a very reader, a very active rather reader community on Facebook particularly. And we have a lot of fun there looking at pictures of my dog and bits of my writing life and my small town life. And I, and I value my readers tremendously. Thank you. That's awesome. Listeners, make sure you check the show notes because we will have links to all the places where you can keep up with the wonderful, wonderful Jen Gilroy, as well as where you can get her books. Aaron, tell everybody where they can follow you. So I am primarily on YouTube, uh, Aaron's Reading Room. I'm on Twitter. Uh, if you look up Aaron's Reading Room, you can probably find me there too. And then I'm on Instagram as well as the Book Brood Adventures. Yes. And you just had some good news. Can we share it or no? Oh, um, well, I... I don't know if I can share it or not, honestly. (laughs) I guess what I can share is I got offered a spot in the Harlequin video group. So uh, I might be making videos for Harlequin's YouTube channel here soon. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. That's fantastic, (laughs) Erin. Well, I'll have links to where you all can keep up with Erin as well and keep your eyes on the Harlequin site. You should be visiting there anyway so you can get Jen's book. But you will also begin to see Erin's videos there as well. So all of that will be in the show notes, guys. Thank you so much, Jen and Erin, for being here today. It's just been so wonderful chatting with you all. And listeners, thank you so much for listening. And we will talk to you in our next episode. Have a lovely day, everybody. Bye.